you made it. Uh, if you have your Bible, please find the book of Hebrews. That's where we've been in for a while. This is uh, uh, the next episode, if you will, in this series. I remember when I was a kid, my, uh, my grandma would, would go to church, and she was very, very religious that way. Um, a great, great person. We named our daughter Emma after my grandma Emma. And I would go to church with grandma, and I have just these memories of, of going to church with her. And, and the, the church that she went to was certainly more of, 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 a, more of a high church tradition. So uh, when you would go to church with my grandma, it was um, a, a very different experience than maybe what we would have here. Uh, there, it was, uh, it was all pews, and there was this little kneeling bench on every, on every aisle. And you'd put that down at certain points. I never knew when those points were. As a kid, I was always confused by everything that happened. Some of you may have had a background like this. My grandma was, was Catholic. Anybody grow up Catholic or have family members that are Catholic? Okay, there's three of us. Okay, we're a support group right here. Uh, no, no, there was, there was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was interesting. You know, as a kid, I, I didn't really understand what was going on. I mean, when you first walked into the, to the, the building there, the church building, there was a basin of water and I noticed some people would like pass by the water and just dip their finger in and kind of touch their forehead. They touched the middle of their chest, then their shoulders. I didn't really know what that was all about, but everybody seemed to kind of know what was going on. And then we, we, would, we would sing some songs out of this little, little booklet. And then at some points we said stuff all in the same cue and didn't, I had no idea. People were standing up and sitting down and kneeling. The whole time I felt like somebody had a playbook that I was not privy to. And, uh, and then... You know, there was all that going on. And then, uh, and I just remember, like, especially the first time, I remember clearly, my, see, I used to also go with my grandma to bingo. And I'm like, this is way different than Catholic bingo right now. And, uh, and then, of course, there's this, this person that would be at the front, and, uh, and he was, you know, wearing robes, and he would have this, this white collar. You seen what I, you know? What I'm talking about the white collar. I've thought about ordering one of those just because I think it, it looks kind of cool. But uh, it was serious, really serious business. And and at some points, you know, my grandma would come forward with everybody, and he would say some something over this little piece of little wafer thing. And and it was we do communion. That was that basically I knew I know now what they were doing. It was it was communion, but very formal. And this guy up front seemed to know the whole thing. He was kind of the orchestrator of the whole thing. And he almost, when I was a kid, seemed untouchable. Now later, obviously, I found out that was the priest, right? And that was the father. And, uh, you know, I kind of learned that going, going through time, and I've, I've learned that now. But it's interesting that we don't often have interactions, especially, you know, maybe in a church of our tradition. We don't have, you know, priests and, and people that have the, 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 the robes and all of that. And, uh, and, and I don't know what your impression of priests are. Would you just say right now, if we just were to pull the room, the idea of priests in our culture, do you think it would be on the positive side or the negative side? Everybody's afraid to answer. I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, is it positive, is it negative? You know, sometimes the priesthood or the concept of priest, you know, in, in media and television, I mean, sometimes like the priest is the bad guy, you know, or the monster. But then you have the other side of the camp, you know, where it's like he's this mystic, you know, and it's untouchable, otherworldly. It's like we have these two, you know, polar opposite views of priesthood. Now, some people think of priests, and they think, well, it's this holy man of God, kind of like maybe a Jewish rabbi, 
you know, that, that would wear the yarmulke and he'd have maybe the curls. Or, or maybe like the Dalai Lama that people travel to and sit and get his wisdom or, or, or some other kind of religious leader. But they're kind of, you know, in that same camp of this kind of this, this, this office of this holy person that somehow has a special, you know, connection to God that maybe the normal person like us wouldn't, wouldn't have connection to. And so I don't know what your, your, your vision of a priest would be, but as we get into episode five today, the writer of Hebrews is going to walk us through a little bit of how Jesus is actually the greatest high priest there's ever been. And, and all the different ways that the, the nation of Israel, the ancient nation of Israel, which is part of the Old Testament story, they had many, many priests. But Jesus, we're going to find out, is, is the highest of the high, the true and greater. Not only was he otherworldly and holy, and he's like the God of the universe, but he actually understands our weakness because he put on flesh and walked among us. So he's unique and he's the highest. And that's what we're going to lean into today. And that's going to be pretty good. But some of you have read ahead. In chapter 6, we're going to get a pretty stern warning. And it's a passage that's probably one of the hardest ones in the Bible. So we're going to lean in this morning. We're not going to cover it over. We're not going to you know, brush that under the rug. We're going to lean in hard. So let's pray and get your scriptures ready. Here we go. Father, we come before you and we recognize that you're in charge and we're not. Uh, Lord, you, you've done so much for us. Uh, you're amazing and powerful and yet you care about everything that we care about. So Lord, thank you for that. We lean into your word. Speak to us powerfully by your Holy Spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so far in Hebrews, if you haven't caught every episode, this is episode five. Hopefully you've been following along in your journal. We're going to get to this spot now about, that, about priesthood. But before this, remember, the, the writer's already told us in chapter one that Jesus is, is the God's final word. God's ultimate answer to everything was fulfilled in Jesus. That's chapter one. And then that chapter continues saying, hey, Jesus is even greater than any angelic, angelic being. He's unique and way ahead of any angel that you could ever have. Any word from anybody else, Jesus trumps all of that, takes care of all of that. And we found out in chapter 3 that Jesus is even greater than the superhero of old, Moses. Jesus is greater even than Moses. And then we also found out last week that the only way for us to find true peace and true rest is through Jesus. He's the only pathway for us to experience that. And so the writer warns us, don't harden your hearts. Remember that? We talked about that. Don't harden your hearts. In fact, the writer says it several times so that we get it into our heads. Don't harden your hearts like they did in, in the ancient Israel community when they saw the great things of God and they're like, eh, don't harden your heart. That was the warning for last time. So, so this time we're going to pick up the story in Chapter 4, verse 14. So if you've got a Bible or a device, please find that. We're going to read this through. It's a little bit of a longer passage. But listen for things like, like a repetition. Listen for things that maybe, maybe you want answers on. This is how we read the scriptures, is, is God almost reading us as we're going through this. So starting with uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect 
has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was a a high priest. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk about that next time. (laughs) In the days of of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. After being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, the, have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and instructions about washings and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who, who, for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and whistles or thistles, it is worthless and, and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by by whom to swear, he swore to himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. 
And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie... We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Whoo! All right. Remember, part of the reason that I kind of did that, you notice I didn't even tell you, oh, we're into chapter 5, or we're into chapter 6. Remember, this was originally written kind of straight through, and this is a letter. Oftentimes, we read a letter or a message, we'll listen to the entirety, right? So we're trying to get the the flow of what the writer's telling us, what the speaker is telling us. What stood out to you? Anybody? Who is Melchizedek? Right, that probably stood out. Now, we're going to cover that next time. It's kind of a Kind of, a, kind of an odd figure in the Old Testament, kind of an obscure, he only shows up one place in the Old Testament, and it was around the time Abraham had just like defeated a bunch of people in battle, and there's this Melchizedek guy that comes on the scene. In Genesis 14, you can kind of do some backstory. We're going to talk about that more next episode. So yes, Melchizedek does show up there, the guy with the weird name, kind of reminds me of Rumpelstiltskin or something like that, like where did that come from? But certainly, there's some comparison here of priesthood, Right? The priests of, you know, the human priests versus the priesthood of Jesus. So I don't know if you caught some of that, but this interplay between, you know, the, the human high priests, they're, they're always, they're kind of operating out of weakness, right? They, they've got to, they're, they're making these sacrifices for the sins of the people. That was kind of the Old Testament way to do things. Uh, and so they were acting on behalf of the people, but they also had to act on behalf of themselves, so there's that interplay, right? They, they're offering sacrifices, but they also have to offer for themselves. You know, they've got some issues of sin to deal with. So they're kind of you know, the weaker operating. And then we have the greater, who is Jesus. Remember, that was an ancient way that the, the first century writers and speakers, they would use some logic that they call the lesser to the greater. So here's, again, the lesser to the greater. The lesser being these human high priests, and these priests that would, you know, go about their business. And, and, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks. In fact, I did some research. And we're going to do a day in the life of a priest in the Old Testament. And you will be blown away. Like, these guys must have been, like, super, like, like bigger muscles than David. I mean, like, these guys, they had sharp knives. And, man, so we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. Because I, I can't even imagine being a religious leader in that day and age. It, was, it would have been a whole different thing. But we got this comparison, right? The, the human high priest versus Jesus. And we find out that Jesus, he understands our weaknesses because he put on flesh and walked among us. So he understands, but he never failed. And that's a big difference. So, you know, I want Jesus to be doing the priesthood stuff for me, not one of these guys that you're struggling. I mean, they got their place, but I want Jesus because his sacrifice is perfect. I, I, would, I want to be in his camp. But Jesus understood, and that's really important for us, because following the way of Jesus is super hard. That means being generous when we don't want to. That means being kind when we don't want to. That means not saying something bad about someone when we don't want to. I mean, this is the way of Jesus, and we need each other, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit. 
It is hard to walk the way of Jesus. And so Jesus understands our temptations. He gets it. And that's a beautiful thing, but he never failed. That's kind of the difference that we're seeing here. And then we, of course, have this Melchizedek guy. We'll talk about him next time because that's a super interesting idea. But Jesus also has a unique priesthood in that he passed through the heavens. Right? That's kind of a hint to his divinity, right? And no human priest did that. You know, they didn't take a, a you know, road trip through the heavens. Only Jesus did that because he created the heavens. Okay, that's a big difference. So he, he is a unique priest in that way. But the writer also tells us another unique thing about Jesus is yeah, he never failed, and he offered himself as the sacrifice. None of these other human priests did that. They weren't hopping up on a cross. Nobody was signing up for that duty. Jesus took that. So he's like the ultimate high priest, but a unique high priest, in that he was like the suffering servant. And the scriptures say that he even allowed himself, you know, even though he was God, he humbled himself, put on flesh, and he understood even the idea of obedience, God of the universe, he understands even the concept of obedience. And he was humble. And he went to that cross. Now he's exalted at the right hand of God. But he had a unique priesthood. And, you know, all this priesthood stuff, you may be wondering, well, why are we talking about this? It's not really part of our culture now. You're wasting time. Well, this, the writer's talking about it. We should talk about it. Even though priests are not the thing. I don't wear a collar or things like that. But it would make sense that the writer's talking so much about priests if you remember how we got this thing started four or five weeks ago, do you remember who they think the original audience would have been? Anybody remember that? There's a likelihood that the writer is someone who's in Italy somewhere, maybe around Rome, and they're writing this, and they've recorded, that probably this, was a, this is probably a, a speech, because it's really, really well articulated. And this would have been, the original audience likely would have been People in home churches in and around Jerusalem, and they think some of these home churches were filled with former Jewish priests. Now it starts to make sense that the writer's spending so much time making the comparison. And again, he's not saying that human priests are bad or the priests that are serving right now, folks, at the temple, which it was still, in, it was still going on during this first century, even during this writing, still happening. Sacrifices were still being made in the temple. It was before Rome basically destroyed the whole thing. So he's not ripping on those priests. He's just saying, Jesus is way better. So why would you return to those priests when we have the ultimate high priest, unique son of God who paid for every sin and he never needed covering for his own because he didn't sin. You see, that makes sense now because he's trying to make this, this case with the people who were former priests and they were considering going back, ditching Jesus, going back to their familiar. And, and the writer's saying, hold fast, hold fast. Remember that? He says that, hold fast. Several times in this whole thing, he's going to say, hold fast to that confession. Don't give up. Jesus is your ultimate high priest. Now, let's get to the elephant in the room. What would you think in this passage that we read would be the elephant in the room? Okay, look at it again if you got your device. Come on, you, you, we read it, but I don't know if you caught it. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. I know we read it, I read it fast. For it is impossible. Lean into that for a second. What does that mean? 
what is this? This is, uh, again, we're going verse by verse through this thing, and I'm not going to skip over any of this. When the writer says something that kind of gets our dander up, we need to lean in, not kind of cover it up, lean in. What is, what is the writer telling us here? For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. These are Christians who say, I'm done with Jesus. I'm done with his sacrifice. I've tasted it all. I've been in Christian community. I even had the bumper sticker, and I'm pulling it off, and I'm done. Is that what the writer's saying here? The air is thick. I'll let you know this. The commentators light it up on this one. Because there's different camps out there. But this is not the only place the writer is going to say some uncomfortable things. These are warnings. Remember, when the scriptures warn us something, we need to like lean in, not kind of back away. Lean in. What is this saying? Why would the writer be warning us about this? Remember, he's writing to Christians. And he says it's impossible. Now, there was one commentator that I wrote, one of my favorite. And he said, you cannot dismiss that word. You can't change it out for it is difficult. The Greek does not allow it. It is impossible. What do we do with this? Now, some of you have opinions. Can a Christian who is in the fold... They come, they're, they're part of Sunday gatherings. They, they, they'll mark it on their little, you know, cheat. They, I'm a Christian, mark that box. They pray. They might read their Bible. They, they, they go to Christian concerts. They, they check all the boxes. Is it possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? I mean, that's the elephant in the room, is it not? We agree? Now, there are some camps that say absolutely not. You cannot lose your salvation no matter what you do. You can spit at God, you can walk away, you can do horrible evil, but if you accepted Jesus in your life at one point, you're in. That is one camp. You can't do anything to lose it. Then there's another camp, and I'm not going to tell you what camp I'm part of, by the way, right now. You can send me emails, I'll be happy to give you my opinion. But the other camp said, yes, you can. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to lose your salvation, but... Would God honor you if you said, I'm done? I don't want anymore. I don't, I don't believe what you believe. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to do it. I don't want to be part of this thing anymore. It was a good thing to do when I was a kid, but now life, circumstances, I, I, I've learned more. I, I've evolved as a human, and I don't need that religion stuff. Can you lose your salvation? That is the big elephant in the room You cannot dilute the word impossible. Aren't you glad you're not a preacher today? (laughs) The commentators, as you would imagine, light this thing up. Let me just read to you a couple of these that I I thought stood out. Uh, A writer named Hughes said this. Clearly, this is a situation here 
of extreme gravity. Here we have a solid description of someone who is a follower of Christ that walks away from it all. This is someone who's professed the Christian faith. They've enjoyed Christian fellowship. Uh, they've, they've engaged in Christian witness. Uh, they, they've, they've even shown spiritual gifts. And yet, they walk away proving to be a hypocrite and an enemy of Christ and turning away from what they've known. And this shows that they don't, believe, they don't belong anymore to God's people. That is a scary statement. That's one commentator. Here's another one. William Lane, he said this, what is visualized here is that we have every form of, de- of departure from faith in the crucified Son of God. To repudiate Christ and to say this doesn't matter is to embrace the impossible. At least from a human perspective. Let's, let's continue. One of the study Bibles I read actually said this. This, this. this describes people who have fallen away in a decisive and irrevocable manner. Is, is daily repentance part of their walk with Jesus? No. Such a falling away treats Jesus with such serious rejection that it is as if a person wanted to again put Jesus on the cross. And after such a departure, there can be no return. The New International Greek commentary says this, the author here presupposes but does not directly affirm that apostasy or renunciation of the faith can occur. Now what's interesting here, did you catch what the writer says after this? But none of you are in danger of that. That's what he, what he wrote to the audience. Whoever was the, re, the original recipients of this letter, he said, this is a reality, but this is not your reality. But we can't back away from the fact that he said that. She said that. Whoever wrote this letter, we don't know. Powerful. So once again, elephant in the room, what do we do with this? Here's some options, right? Here's a couple options. Still not going to give you my opinion right now. A couple of options. Here's number one. Okay, well, people who were fully Christian but willfully walked away. That's got to be category one, right? Again, depending on your church background or whatever, you may or may not have had this kind of argument or talks about this. But uh, so option one is a person who were fully Christian. They, 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 were, they were card-carrying member, turned in their stuff and said, I'm done. Right, that's option number one. Number two, people who weren't really believers at all. That's a big argument. People who weren't really in. I mean, they, they had the bumper sticker and they might have wore a shirt, but they weren't really like, they were kind of like fans of Jesus, but not necessarily followers. Does that make sense? But they liked Jesus on Facebook, but they weren't going to like sacrifice anything for him. Does that make sense? So people who weren't really, weren't really in the fold. And there's a lot of people that hold that view, you know? There's another one. People who are simply borderline with Jesus. Now, these are people that, again, they're part of religious community, they're, they're, they're regular church attenders, but they really haven't engaged. And so borderline, those two are kind of related, but borderline followers of Jesus, you know, they may or may not check it on the box, depending on the people. They may or may not, not ever say they go to church in the work environment. Uh, borderline. And really, remember, this was probably addressed to former 
Jewish priests that were considering going back and ditching Jesus. They were considering returning back to the Old Testament law. Now, there's two camps here, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this. Now, there's two camps that are pretty prevalent on this sword, this whole conversation. There's those who were of the John Calvin group. And John Calvin was a, a writer, a preacher, a long time ago, 500-some years ago. Uh, Calvinism is something that people attribute to John Calvin. And one of his, his tenements of his teaching and his doctrine said that uh, there is no way you have eternal security no matter what you do. That would be considered the Calvinist viewpoint. He had other viewpoints, but that's one of them in this discussion. Then there was another guy who wrote about the same time, a guy named Jacob Arminius. And he wrote, no, uh, it, it may be really hard to lose your salvation, but you still could if you walked away. You can lose your salvation. So in theological camps, and this is true in seminaries and Bible colleges, there's two camps. Now, I think there are more options, but those are, those are the two big camps. Some of you are familiar with those terms, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Love those ism words. Uh, where do you land? There's lots of opinions. But remember, those were arguments made in the 15th century. Okay, so 500 years. But prior to that, the early church lived with the tension. And this is something I think it's hard for us Westerners to get. We want things black and white, yes or no, in order. We want the bullet points. But I think for the longest time in the early church, they lived with the tension. It's kind of like the schism that happened early, early on in the church, around three to 400 years. Uh, and there, there, the, the first big split in the church was, how can Jesus have been fully God and fully human? That was actually the first kind of schism in the church. They couldn't figure that out. And so some of the creeds were written to kind of cover some of these schisms. And what they came up with is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we affirm it and let the tension sit. I don't think we're comfortable with the tension. We want a black and white, yes or no. How many mistakes can I make? How close to the line can I get so I still get heaven but I get to do what I want? That's, I think, the way we sort of treat these things. And I think the early church was okay with tension. That, yes, Jesus saves us, but he's called us. He said himself, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We have a responsibility. Right? So there's a tension there. We're saved by grace through faith. And now we're called to live up to our calling. So we have a part in this. I still haven't given you my opinion. Lots of, uh, lots of sides on this. You know, you probably could argue this. In fact, you could even use Jesus' own words to argue either side of this, these two camps. Can you lose your salvation or can you, you'll never lose your salvation. You could probably, yeah, argue it from both sides, but listen to this, and I think this is helpful. And I'm letting the tension sit, okay? Let the tension sit. You're welcome. Tension in the room. Impossible, right? We've got to talk about the impossible word. Listen to what this commentator said. It's impossible for humans to restore someone to a state of repentance. But God can still do so. God can still do so. Within the larger context, 
it seems here that the author of Hebrews is arguing that those who have experienced the powerful things described there, experiencing the the gifts and, and the fellowship and all of that, these powerful things, for someone to have experienced all of that and yet walk away, they are left entirely to the work of God. That makes sense? Remember, Jesus himself said, here we go, in, in Matthew 19, with God, all things are possible. Does that make sense? Now you're like, you didn't land on either side of that. Not fair. Again, smart people have argued about this. I do have my opinions, but look, Jesus is always in charge of our salvation. And God is way more fair than any of y'all, including me. When we get to heaven on the other side, whatever new heavens and new earth looks like, we're going to be pleasantly surprised at those who are there. And we might have to adjust our opinions. I don't know. God is way more fair than we are, and only in Jesus is salvation possible. With God, all things are possible. With man, there's a lot of stuff that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So what do we do? Well, we know Jesus is our only hope. That is clear all the way through this. Jesus is our only hope. If we're going to have salvation from sin, we need that high priest, not any human high priest. That's the argument that mainly this passage was talking about. But in Christ, I love this phrase. Did you catch it? In Christ, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. It's like that's our anchor from the storm. I love that that that. That phrase there, the anchor of the soul. I mean, don't you love that? It's, it's very poetic sort of language. Whoever this writer was, they knew their stuff. They knew how to, they knew how to craft a pretty great argument. Anchor of the soul in Christ. We have the steadfast anchor of the whole. Only in him can we have confidence to approach the throne of grace. The writer told us that. Only in him is there full assurance that we hold fast to that. Only through obedience to him do we have everything he's called us to enjoy. He is the source of eternal salvation. He is the source of it all. So what about you? And here's where I want to land this plane. This is important. We, we need to hear this so bad. Let's not just keep drinking the milk. Babies drink milk. The writer's kind of getting on us here a little bit. Let's mature beyond just, I'm saved by grace through faith. That's a great beginning point, but the writer's saying, let's move on to maturity. What else is God calling you to beyond just saying yes to him? Saying, I'm in the camp, I want to be in Jesus' family, that's wonderful. The writer's saying, you need to grow up. Grow up. So I'm telling us all here, me included, grow up. Grow up. Mature in the faith. Don't stay at that milk level. I mean, look, A five-year-old can act like a five-year-old, but a 30-year-old acting like a five-year-old, that's just sad. And the writer's saying, grow up. Now, I'm not trying to be mean. That's what he's saying. Grow up in the faith. Mature beyond the elementary truths. What is God calling you beyond being part of his family? He's called each of us uniquely with our own gifts and Holy Spirit power. We, we have a unique role to play in the kingdom. What are you doing with that? What are you doing with your talents and your gifts? How are you moving the ball forward? Because we're called to mature in faith. What is your unique role in bringing Jesus' love to the world? What is your role? Following Jesus is a decision that lasts daily for a lifetime. 
and we're called to grow up in the faith. And that's my only point today. See, we're saved the moment we turn to Jesus. And then he says, now, fulfill the role I've called you to. Grow up in the faith. Does that make sense? Again, we got a lot of, I think that this is a, this is a, a, a problem that the, early, or the, the church of today has. We have a lot of people just kind of doing the milk thing. But nobody's maturing. I think we need to be a church family that's trying to mature. Not so that we're all that, but we're maturing in faith, going beyond just, just what is simple and surface, to go and hold fast to Jesus and grow up. So that's our call. I'm challenging you and I'm challenging me. Grow up. We have a responsibility in Christ to grow. And nobody has that responsibility but me and you. Not someone else's job to grow you in the faith. You trust Jesus, you listen to the Holy Spirit, you're surrendered to him, you're spending time with the Lord, that's not someone else's job. If you're a follower of Jesus, you got to get that right, and you don't forsake the getting together. We're going to talk about that in chapter 10, but this helps us. It helps us. We have encouragement, we have a support system, but it's not someone else's job to mature you. How sad is it that we've continued in many ways to embrace prolonged immaturity? It's time to grow up. It's time to grow up. That's the key thing here. It's not someone else's job. And this is what you need to ask yourself this week. Ask yourself maybe today, God, where have I been spiritually lazy? Where have I been spiritually lazy? Jackie and I have a, uh, a prayer journal that we started. Um, and uh, it's something that we do kind of after we finish the evening meal. And we'll, we'll pray. There's probably five or six items on that right now. And uh, it came out of a conviction that, you know, we really haven't been praying together all, very consistently. And, um, and we both decided, let's challenge our ch- ourselves to actually pray together more often. You know, here's the pastor telling you that I've struggled with praying consistently. So I'm praying, and some of you are on that list. It's not someone else's job. It's, it's the responsibilities on Jackie and I. What is God calling you to? Where have you been spiritually lazy? Where have you been spiritually lazy? Rather than being dull and sluggish and immature, unskilled in God's word, we press forward to Christ's likeness. Hold fast to Jesus and grow up. That's what our call is today. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you. We thank you for your love for us, your faithfulness. You're so merciful, even though sometimes we're at, we act immature. Lord, I pray that each of us would take this warning and heed it well. And that, Father, we wouldn't harden our hearts and we wouldn't stay immature, that we would press forward to mature in faith. We would do that with each other, with time with you. Lord, we, we, we today, I pray for every heart here, every person here, that today would be a, a day we mark as the day we start to pursue growth in a serious way. Lord, empower us for that. Help us to hold fast to your son, Jesus, and to grow up. In Christ's name we pray, amen.